Well, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. You see in your bulletin, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, there, are bullet, there are Bibles available for you on the back table if you don't have a copy of God's Word, and the passage is in the insert in your bulletin. We're nearing the end of this three-month series that I've entitled The Life of a Pilgrim, and we've talked about a lot of specific things about the Christian life, a lot of specific uh, areas in our life that need to be chiseled, that need to be sanded, some that need to be just painfully cut out of our lives. Uh, for these last two weeks, as we bring this series to a close, I want to step back a bit and I want to think in more general terms about the Christian life, about the pilgrim life. And so Mark chapter 2 is where we find ourselves Today, here in the life of Jesus, as he is questioned, Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 18, listen as I read. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. I don't know how many of you remember the uh, flip-flop controversy of 2005. You'll probably remember when I start to speak of it, in 2005, the Northwestern University National Championship women's lacrosse team was invited to the White House to meet and mingle with President Bush. And uh, upon the group photo of that meeting being published, it became evident that several of the young women on that team were wearing flip-flops in the White House, and it caused a great uproar about the appropriateness of meeting the President of the United States in flip-flops. To their defense, one of them stated that her flip-flops had rhinestones on them, and so that they were step up from what you might wear to the beach. But it was a matter of what was appropriate. Was that an appropriate attire to meet such an important Individual. This morning I want to talk a little bit, or at least begin by talking about appropriateness. It's a discussion that we have frequently in the Hitchcock home, often with our boys, uh, concerning what they're going to wear to church. Is this look okay? No, it doesn't. Try again for the fifth time. This passage this morning, maybe an odd passage, uh, as you think about where we've been but I think it's an appropriate passage for us 
uh, to end a series that really could go on and on, as I mentioned last week, for many weeks, because it's simply, the pilgrim life is simply every day of our lives and what those lives look like and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Of course, this passage is not about clothes, but it is about what is appropriate. And I think this passage speaks to us about two major themes that carry us along on our pilgrim journey. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be in this small passage. And this week, we're going to consider just the first truth that we can learn from this passage. And so kids, those of you who are diligently taking notes, there's really one point for us today, one truth that you have to get down on your clipboards, but then there are three pictures that you need to listen for, three pictures of Jesus that you need to listen for. Uh, but as we look at this passage, I want you, uh, because some of you will leave this place thinking, well, that's not all that there is in that passage. There's more there. I know there's more there. We're going to come back to it next week. Uh, originally, what I thought was going to be one message was divided into two, and uh, you'll be thankful for that, I'm sure. Um, But today we just begin with the first truth, saving the second for next week, and it's this. It's a great thing for us to consider. It's simply this. A pilgrim's life is a life of feasting. A pilgrim's life, your life, is a life of Feasting. Now what do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to have to explain myself, I recognize. At the center of this passage, of uh, this narrative of the Lord Jesus and His disciples is a question. It's one posed to Jesus. They ask Him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, for those of you unfamiliar, which probably many of you aren't, but our kids probably need a little bit of help here in understanding what is meant by the word fast. What does it mean that to fast? Well, fasting, kids and others, was and still is the practice of abstaining from food and drink for a spiritual purpose. So it means not eating that you might focus on the Lord. And we're going to talk more about that next week. More about that practice and that word of fasting next week. But for this week, I want you to just recognize that fasting was a regular yearly practice of the nation of Israel for centuries. As part of the Day of Atonement, when the priest stood before God to make atonement for the sins of the people of God, they were required to fast, to afflict themselves, as the book of Leviticus says. To afflict themselves with deep sorrow for, with seriousness about their sin, about the state of their hearts. In addition to that yearly significant fast, fasting had been had become a normal part of Old Testament piety. And for generations and for centuries had been used in various situations. In Judges chapter 20, we read of the the Israelites fasting right before 
uh, inquiring of the Lord whether they should go into battle. David fasted as he cried out to the Lord on behalf of his sick son. So with this Old Testament backdrop on the issue of fasting, we learn that John's disciples were fasting. And it wasn't because it was the Day of Atonement necessarily. It was because they were followers of the one who was crying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so there was a seriousness. There was a solemnness. There was a sorrow for their sin and a mourning for their sin and a longing for the Messiah that created in them this desire to abstain for food that they might focus on the Lord. Our text tells us that the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting too. That the Pharisees didn't have disciples in the same way that the Lord Jesus had, but they did have those who adhered to their brand, to their interpretation of religion. And their fasts were likely an attempt to score some sort of spiritual point before the Lord. But getting back to the question, knowing what we know now, we can really expand this question that's posed to Jesus in Mark chapter 2 to this. So Jesus, I don't get it. John's disciples are fasting because they are serious about their sin. They're longing for the Messiah. And the Pharisees are fasting because they are serious about pleasing God through their works. What's the deal with your followers? Aren't you serious? Aren't your followers serious? Luke's account of this very same instance in Luke chapter 5 goes a step further and makes explicit what Mark only implies. Mark, or excuse me, Luke writes, they are fasting, but your disciples are eating and drinking. So Jesus responds to this question with his familiar searching style and he asks them a question. And he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And then he answers it for them. And he says, no. No, they can't. In other words, fasting right now is not appropriate. It's not appropriate. Jesus loved weddings. I really think he loved weddings. Jesus chose to perform his first miracle at a wedding, the wedding in Cana. The imagery of marriage and weddings is all over the Scriptures. We read some of it this morning. Even in Joel chapter 2. I think we all love weddings. They're beautiful celebrations of love and commitment, and they're accompanied by fasting. No, they're not. They're accompanied by feasting. See, Jesus draws our gaze to the fact that a wedding celebration means a feast has come. Because Jesus has come, the feasting has begun. 
pilgrim's life is a life of feasting. Because of Jesus' presence, because of the newness of what Jesus brings, the old forms of religion that had been passed down for centuries are no longer appropriate. At least not in the ways, not in the same ways that they have been practiced for centuries upon centuries. And Jesus explains this in this little brief passage in Mark chapter 2 by three metaphors to teach this reality. So kids, you got that one point, and here come the three metaphors. I'm certain that these are things that the people that were hearing Jesus in his day really didn't understand. They didn't see the fullness of these metaphors. But we have the privilege of looking back and, and seeing clearly and having the whole corpus of Scripture before us. And we see the richness and the fullness of what Jesus said about himself and about what he came to do. So three things, three metaphors under this pilgrim life is a life of feasting. First, Jesus declares that he is the bridegroom. Jesus declares that he is the bridegroom. As I just spoke about, this imagery is all over the Scriptures. The kingdom of heaven is spoken about as a wedding feast. John speaks about the picture in his letter of revelation to the churches. But here in Jesus' day, they're trying to piece it together still. Some may have heard of John the Baptist speak of himself as being the friend of the bridegroom in John chapter 3, but even that reference might have been a bit confusing for them. But if we'd back up for just a moment, if we'd open up the Old Testament, we would see that deep in Israel's history, when it prophesied of the age to come, it spoke of Yahweh Himself being the bridegroom, with Israel being the bride. We, we, we touched on it a bit this morning in Joel. You heard a little bit of echo of it, but I want to read Isaiah 54, verses 4-7, through seven, as the prophet writes long before this account in Mark, the prophet Isaiah writes, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband." The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And then again in Isaiah 62, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Beautiful imagery. Beautiful imagery that the Creator gives to His people about His relationship with them 
in covenant. And what does Jesus do? He grabs a hold of that Old Testament imagery in the book of Isaiah and he declares, I am that bridegroom. I am your husband. And even more than that, the age that Isaiah spoke of, that age to come when the king from David's line would reign, when God would begin to make all things right, that age is here. It has arrived in me. In me. See, if this was true, if what Jesus was saying to His original hearers, many of them with those echoes of Old Testament prophecy in their heads and those allusions to the bridegroom and to the Lord being the husband, if that was true, then everything changes. Everything is different. And that's exactly Jesus' point. Let the feasting begin. Because I'm here. Well, that's the first, that's the first metaphor that he gives, but he continues to solidify this point with another picture in verse 21. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And so not only is Jesus the bridegroom, but the second metaphor is a garment. A garment. This is kind of a hard picture for us uh, to see, for us to understand. Whenever I read this passage, I think of those iron-on patches that my mom used to put on my jeans that I used to absolutely hate. They stood out on your knees like sore thumbs. Some of you moms shaking your head because you did that to your sons. Of course, my kids don't even know what those are. But it's similar to that as Jesus speaks of this garment. What Jesus is saying is that the newness that has arrived in Him is not going to fit with the old patterns. Jesus comes with new cloth altogether, with new garments. Oh, this is a great picture. New garments, as Isaiah 61 spoke of, as we sang of last week. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Jesus is the, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the robe of righteousness. And then finally in verse 22, he speaks, and Presbyterians love this, he speaks of wine. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, of course, we in our modern day, we think, and rightly so, of wine being in bottles, but the ancient custom was to put wine in goatskin bags, bags that would expand as the new wine began to ferment. 
When the bags got old, when they got aged, they would get brittle. And so to put new wine in a brittle old bag would be disastrous. Under the pressure of fermentation, the bag would burst and break and the new wine would be destroyed. You see, new wine needs new wineskins. And so the newness of what Jesus brings trumps all that the ancient practices of Judaism could handle. And so this picture of wine, just like the picture of garments, just like the picture of bridegroom, none of these are off-the-cuff comments for Jesus. These are all very calculated, very vivid Old Testament pictures of the newness that He brings, the fullness that He brings, and the reason that the feasting ought to begin. Jeremiah 31 describes the new covenant flowing with wine. Joel 3, we'll read next week. And Amos 9, both speak of the abundance of wine as a blessing of the new age. Wine was the drink of gladness, the drink of celebration, the drink of provision. And Jesus says it all. All of those things have arrived in Me. Let the feast begin. The old form of mournful fasting doesn't fit with the new revelation of Jesus in whom is found blazing, burning joy. And why is there such joy? Because, well, just read the sermon that is the book of Hebrews. Read the book of Romans. Read the book of Galatians. Jesus is a better, fuller revelation than the Jews ever had. Jesus is the better leader than Moses ever was. He's the better sacrifice that was ever offered. He is the better high priest. He gives us more access to God than we ever had before. Through Him we have peace. Through Him we are received by grace, not by works. Through Him we're adopted as sons and daughters, heirs to an inheritance. Through Him we have the Spirit in us. And I could go on and on and on. But I'm simply trying to underscore the point that the life of a pilgrim is a life of feasting. For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, we've experienced this feast. But how easy it is for us to forget His promises, to be distracted from His Word. And when I say life is a feast, I'm not saying that life is never difficult. I'm not saying that there is never a place and a time for mourning. There is. But His presence the presence of the bridegroom, of the robe of righteousness, never leaves. For His disciples sitting there listening to Him talk, certainly they felt His presence. That's why they were eating and drinking. That's why they weren't fasting. Because Jesus was there. But for us, Jesus is with us as well. In Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age, He declares. And then 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18, 
reminds us that His presence is doing His work in us. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. People of God, I want this passage this morning to remind you to call you back to the joy of the Gospel. To the joy of what Jesus has accomplished and brought for you. You have a joy that the world longs for. Even those who don't acknowledge it. Even those who belittle it. They need it. They long for it. And so let your soul feast on His goodness. Let the joy of the Gospel pervade your countenance. I don't know, I think I, in part I wanted to go here because I felt like over the past several weeks we've talked about a lot of heavy things. And if you've been listening to me and you've taken seriously the things that, that we've talked about from God's Word, then there's probably some sense of discouragement and, and struggle in those areas that you fall short. I know there's been that for me. And I don't stand up here to say that the struggle's going to end. No, the struggle, that struggle of being changed from one degree of glory to another is going to take us through our whole lives. And that brokenness that we see around us and in us is just part of our experience. And yet, in all of that, never forget that the Gospel is sweet. Never forget that because of Jesus, the feasting can begin. There is joy in the Lord. There is life in His Spirit. Rejoice, the Bible says. Take heart. All these phrases, some of which we've touched on in the very series that we're ending. Even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of heartache, the promises of God are yours. And they're real. You are a new creation. And a new creation awaits you. A restored creation when God makes all things right. Do you believe this? We all have ways that we think we come to God. Some of us, like the Pharisees, think that our goodness is going to be enough. We think that our religious practices, our religious diligence is going to be enough. But the grace that comes through Christ Jesus trumps any of our human efforts. He is the one who satisfied. He is the one who satisfies. And so rest in His grace. Rejoice in His feast. This is the message we need to hear. Of course, there's more to this 
passage, there's this other truth that comes. This passage serves as a, as a paradox of sorts. It comes from verse 20 where, where it says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Jesus has certainly come. He's ushering in the age to come and dwelling among His people until His return. And yet, there is a sense, a very real sense, in which He's not here. He's been taken away. He's not here in the same sense He was with His disciples. And that's why Paul says to the Corinthian church, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. You see, the presence and the absence of Christ illustrate the reality of the pilgrim life, the reality that we live in this overlap between the present age and the age to come. It's that great phrase that I've said before that theologians love to talk about, the already and the not yet. See, we live in the reality of the already. The feasting has begun. And yet we don't have it all yet. The bridegroom has been taken away in one sense. Things are not as they should be. And so alongside the feasting and the joy, there is a hungering. There is a longing. There is a fasting. And that's where we'll find ourselves next week as we open up this passage again. But for today, feast. Feast. Let the fullness and the certainty of what Jesus has accomplished fill your sails. I know that many of you are traveling and have traveled difficult waters. Remember the Gospel. Remember the Bridegroom. Remember the robe of righteousness. Remember the One who is making all things new and let the feasting begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for such glorious truths this morning for us to consider. Father, we need our chins raised. We need our eyes pointed up because it's so easy in the demands and the distractions of life to forget. To forget about the fullness. To forget about the feasting. And so, Father, may the Gospel carry us from this place. May it buoy us this week and uphold us and change us for the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.